0: Hello there,
1: I'm Charlie Ocean, and my pronouns are they, them. Welcome to Allyship as a Verb, a podcast for people practicing allyship for the LGBTQ plus community
2: and beyond. Hello, my name is Tiffany Rossdale and my pronouns are she, her.
1: Before we dive in, I wanna take a moment to say thank you, Len Meyer. Len contributed to the Indiegogo campaign. Thank you so much for your support, kind friend. I'm so excited to have Tiffany on because today we are virtually traveling to Tokyo, Japan to learn about her experience as a transgender woman, especially as someone who emigrated from the Philippines. And she's also had experiences here in the States on her travels that she'll share with us. It was a treat to have her on because I was also on her podcast. The Breakfast with Tiffany Show. She is such a kind and gracious host, and I had a wonderful experience from start to finish. I hope you'll give her podcast a listen. I don't even know how to introduce her fully because she's a shapeshifter who has tapped into so many different fields over the years, so let's just get to it. But first, self-reflection questions. Here are three to consider while you're listening, and be sure to stick around after for three more to take with you. Number one, which famous trans women, if any, can I name? Do I know any from my country? Number two, do I have community to lean on right now? Number three, if I can remember, what did I want my life to look like as a child? Content warning for some transphobia. And now, the conversation. You are transgender and a transformational life coach. What does that intersection mean to you?
2: Being a transgender and a transformational life coach is a powerful intersection for me. I can empathize with the unique challenges faced by transgender individuals. And I can offer guidance from personal experience. I think it's about providing a safe and understanding space for my clients to explore their own journey towards self-discovery and empowerment. And I've been through so many different phases of my life, and a lot of it comes from struggles from my childhood, dealing with my family situations, being the eldest amongst my siblings. It was my responsibility to make my younger siblings, to make them feel safe and have hope that we all can have a better life. Then while dealing with that, I was also in a confusion of my gender identity. And mind you, I was five, six years old during that time and not being accepted by my family, living with different relatives, then moving out from my mom's families to be with my father whose job is a security guard and could only afford to rent an apartment in a slum area of manila then my mother took us back again there's a lot going back and forth and living with different people meeting different people as every year is a new new surroundings new schools for us changing of places i think it was a lot to deal with at a very young age then when i move here in japan coming from the philippines that's when I started my transition, going for different careers. I started from working as a factory worker to a showgirl doing hostessing. And after that, I started my entrepreneurial career. And now, very active in advocating for our community, doing my weekly podcast, which is the Breakfast with Tiffany show, supporting different nonprofit organizations as a leader, and then entering the entertainment industry again, but this time being an actor. So I think with all these transitions and experiences I've had, I can use all of that by helping others through my coaching.
1: Given that you're basically a change expert because of all these transitions that you've gone through, (laughs) what's like one source of support that's helped you through these consistently or is there one thing that's helped you consistently through these?
2: I think the difficulties. I think that helped me having that hope and faith. I can live a life that I want to strive for. And during those times, while navigating all these different careers and all that, having the right community, having the right people around me, that motivated me to, I wouldn't be able to transition and do all that without anyone providing me information and leading me and sharing all this thing. So I think... My surroundings and the people around me are very important. Sometimes when we're
1: kids, because you were talking about knowing who you were around five or six. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we're kids, we have this idea of what we want our life to look like. Did your dreams come true or have they even maybe changed since anything
2: that you dreamed of when you were younger? When I was a kid, I never you. That was like late 80s, right? Like the early 90s. And back in the Philippines, we didn't have much of representation. So I don't really know who I am going to be in the future. I know that I was unique and different. I knew right then that I will have a life that I want, but I didn't see it. I wasn't able to see it clearly that who I wanted to be. Because also part of living in the Philippines, we we're very influenced by American culture. I've been watching a lot of MTV's and all, you know, like movies from America. I thought that one day I can be in America and live an American dream. <laughs> that was my dream back then. Over the time it changed because I was able to travel in America while I was here in Japan. And I realized America is not it's not the place for me to live. I prefer living in Japan. So yeah, it changes. But I think one dream that I had remembering then was to have that American dream. <laughs>
1: What is different about America that you're like, no, thank you. I will stay in Tokyo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you can be honest. Yes, I want to be honest. totally fine. I want to be honest about it. Um, I love America because I've been in America so many times. I've been to the LA, New York. I love Miami. All these big cities, right? I've been able to visit them. I've been able to explore. And I love how the culture is very diverse and everything is Big, everything is, you know, like everything is extravagant in America compared to Japan. But what really made me think that Japan is the place to live is my safety. I've been in America a couple of times where once I reveal myself as a transgender to someone that I meet while I was traveling in America, and I almost got killed because of who I am, and I realized like it's dangerous for me to live in America. And living in Japan for 29 years, I never experienced that at all. So I thought that safety was very important to me. And that's why I'm still here in Japan. In terms of
1: public opinion or social acceptance in Japan, how have you seen attitudes toward transgender individuals and the LGBTQ plus community broadly evolve
2: during your time so far? Has it changed much? I think I've witnessed a gradual shift in attitudes towards transgender individuals in the LGBTQ plus community, especially during the pandemic when we all had that time of reflection. And a big part of that also was the situation during that time there in America when the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter was happening. Then, Then events like... Transgender Day of Remembrance, Transgender Day of Visibility. I think all of this reached Japan and people here started talking about all these issues. That's also when I realized I need to raise my voice and start advocating for our community because I realized that there's not enough activists here in Japan sharing their stories and struggles. For the most part, I didn't let People know that I'm transgender living here for that long. I was scared and there's so many worries I had before. So I kept living by not sharing my gender identity. I always thought that it was for my own safety by not revealing my true identity. So all these realizations and reflections during the pandemic had really pushed me to think of my purpose in life and what I can give back to my community. When I became an activist, I started to meet more people from our community. I was invited to different LGBTQ events. And now I know most of people from the community and I now have more understanding towards each identity within the spectrum. So during the pride parade this year in Japan, I've never seen so many people gathered and paraded during the event. I've seen so many companies, so many brands, even schools, universities, embassies supported the event. So there's definitely a lot of changes happening while there's been progress. I think there's still work to be done and Japan has really made some strides, but there are still legal and societal barriers that hinder full acceptance and inclusion.
1: In order to prepare for my conversation with Tiffany, I was digging around online to find out about the legal protections in Japan, and they aren't as good as they could be. For example, changing one's gender in Japan is legal. Unfortunately, it requires a psychiatric evaluation and surgical sterilization, and they're not the only country to do that. The person must be single and without any children under 20 years old. What? It just reminds me of, won't somebody please think about the children for you Simpsons fans out there. I honestly can't think of any viable reason for that. It's just heinous. So moving along, non-binary, better known as X-gender in Japan is not yet legally recognized. There are no nationwide protections for issues like housing discrimination or employment. Some cities may have protections, like Tokyo does for employment, though. Conversion therapy is not banned. Same-gender marriage is not recognized. But folks can openly serve in the military. Don't love those priorities. Here's what Tiffany had to say about it.
2: The legal landscape in Japan does present challenges for the community. The requirements for legal gender change can be burdensome and the lack of recognition for us LGBTQ individuals is definitely a significant issue. And this impacts also my coaching practice At also it underscores the importance of advocating for legal reform and providing support for clients, navigating these complexities. Now, with my career as an actor, I want to share this story because I rarely get jobs from the agencies. The system here in Tokyo or in Japan, if you're a foreigner and you are an actor, a model or your other entertainers, most of us are freelancers and we can join all the freelance agencies. It's because they know that I'm transgender. <laughs> I would only get like emails or calls from the agencies if there's anything LGBTQ plus related work. For example, this year, I only probably received three or four times and I don't even get the job. So this means there's not a lot of opportunity and you have to make your way. You have to find your ways on your own. And I'm really grateful because living here for a very long time, I made connections and that gave me the opportunity to have project as an actor, which... I would not get it from the industry stuff True, you know, from the agencies. In Japan, like, there's not a lot of LGBTQ plus actors or musicians. And really not much of a representation for our community. I mean, there's several of them, but they're mainly comedians. And I'm not saying that there's something wrong with being a comedian. What I'm concerned about is the future generations from our community need to see that they can be whoever in their careers if they don't see an actor or musician I don't think they will pursue what they're really passionate about and that's what happened to me when I was young
1: yeah here I feel like we're only now starting to tell our own stories and in a way that doesn't have to necessarily be riddled with trauma what I mean by that is, I remember as a young queer person in the 90s when I was able to watch some of the movies that did exist, a lot of it was stigmatizing our community. And there always had to be issues where their mental health wasn't good. They were murderers. They died in the end. Like it was just like constantly tragic. There was no winning. It's felt like that's shifted over time. And now, to see especially younger generations like on shows like Heartstopper, like trans people playing trans roles and just things like that. It's really inspiring. And honestly, I didn't think I'd be able to see something like that in my lifetime. So I think it's really exciting. And that's not to say it is solved and like everything's good because there's still storylines that are the tropes. And like maybe trans women, for example, are only very specific roles and they're not really allowed to step outside of that or whatever that looks like. But I'm excited about the progress. It just it doesn't feel like enough. And it's also exciting at the same time. So it's kind of a it's a complicated feeling for me.
2: Mm, I agree.
1: I agree. What issues within the LGBTQ plus community or even just focusing exclusively on the trans community do you think deserve more attention and discussion in Japan today?
2: I recently met one amazing Japanese transgender woman who is actively doing many work in the government. She tried to run for mayor in one of the most known city in Tokyo, but she didn't want. What she told me was, there is this community of people that doesn't want change in Japan and majority of them are older people. And during the elections, what they do is they're the ones who actively vote and support the candidates they prefer. And these communities are like, seems like a cult, right? Like they don't want to accept like all these new changes like marriage equality and all other LGBTQ plus related issues. I think that's one thing that I can share about when it comes to like blocking the progress of the issues that we're having here in Japan. So you shared with us what some of the reactions were when
1: you were here in the States and shared that you were transgender. What are some of the reactions that you get in Japan when you share that with
2: people? Mm. Japanese people are never really... They're very respectful. That's one thing I love about Japanese people. They're very respectful. They don't judge you for who you are. Sometimes you would also see people around, like, especially during the weekends, <laughs> they dress like, you've probably seen it, like, you know, the Harajuku girls, like, wearing like those outfits. During the weekends, you see a lot of them, like, dressing ups, And people don't look at them like they're, like, they're weird or something. And I've also seen a lot of cross-dressers. So... Seeing them like going around and taking public trains or any public areas in Tokyo, I never see them like someone look at them that they're weird. So that I really appreciated in Japan. And I never had issues being open about myself to people, especially to Japanese people. They have like, oh, some people will be surprised. They'll be like, oh, I didn't know.
1: Ah, yes a tale as old as time. So I've created a rhyme for why, oh, I didn't know isn't a compliment to bestow.
0: This is your reminder or warning for the first timer. Never tell a trans or non-binary person you did it or wouldn't know. It's a big uh, uh-oh A big uh, uh-oh spaghettios It's a big yikes to force stereotypes You think you've got them clocked Well, you're about to be shocked Because you can't tell by looking And who even cares Mind your own business Mind your own affairs And if you think you can, please try to understand Unless we're wearing a shirt, sticker, or pin No, you can't tell by looking
2: there's not that surprise that I received from when I was in America, compare it, gonna compare to people in intervention, better like, just probably like, oh, okay, I didn't know, or they would be like, ah, oh, okay, like, and they move on.
1: When you're sharing that with them, how does it come up? And like, why does it feel important to share with those folks? I mean, we're mm. gonna also talk about dating mm-hmm. in a moment, but mm-hmm. when it's not dating like, yeah, what inspires you to share that part of yourself with people?
2: I think it's really important, like, again, going back to representation, if there's not a lot of people like me talking about this here in Japan, I don't think there's a lot of us part of the community who's talking about it. Like I said earlier, I met this amazing activist in Japan, all these activists in, here in Japan, but I was in New York for Pride event last June. When you go to like one event, there's like tons of tons of like activists. In one event that you're gonna go. While you go to a pride parade in Japan, there's not many. Before I came out, I was also a part of them. Like not like I don't want to be part of it, you know, I don't want to be seen in public. So I know I think a lot of Japanese people are really worried and concerned about losing their families, losing their friends, losing especially their careers. So the tendency is they just shut up and they don't share. And they don't come out. They don't share who they are. And knowing that all this was happening, I really thought that it's so important to share our stories and to be visible wherever we go.
1: How does it come up? Is it like within the first five seconds of meeting someone? Or is there a particular <laughs> topic that comes
2: up? No, but of course I don't like, hey, I'm a transgender, like not like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of like a conversation. I want it to become like, mm-hmm. When I feel like the person is going to be more understandable about, you know, like getting to know them and then I can share a topic about my gender and then I will tell it. Otherwise, it doesn't have to be, you know, every time I meet someone, like I'll tell them I'm transgender. I think it depends on the person, it depends on the situation. It depends on the conversation. <laughs> Dating can be
1: a really hot topic for a lot of reasons, but mm-hmm. it can especially be a unique experience for transgender and non-binary individuals. I'm thinking of one of the big debates that comes up is this idea that if we don't share it right away, that we're trans or non-binary, if we don't share that information right away, that we're either lying to people Mm. or misleading them. And when it's personal and private information, we should be able to share that when we feel comfortable. Like you were just mentioning how you share it with people. Can you share some insights into what it's like for you to navigate the dating scene as a trans woman in Japan? And do you have any tips for others in a similar situation?
2: Mm. Thank you for bringing this question. So I think navigating the dating scene as a transgender woman in Japan can be very complex. I'm going to share also based from my experience as a transgender woman living here. I shared earlier that I almost got killed in america because revealing like what you said earlier revealing yourself can be dangerous to some people in japan i've dated my preferred in dating are straight men or men in general so i used to date a lot of japanese men and a lot of them even if i reveal myself later on not like when you meet them right away and on the date and you tell them about your transgender and this was like back, back like early two thousand. like this was the times where not even people talking about like transgender and all that, right? So I'm very selective of people that I'm going to share myself and revealing myself. Once, of course, I get intimate, if it's going to be a relationship, I think it's important to reveal myself. And what I noticed every time I reveal myself to Japanese people, there is understanding and there is respect and also of course, there were times where I revealed myself, they'd be like, oh, sorry, it's not for me. But I never really had a problem like what I had in America when I revealed myself that I almost got killed. So I think in Japan, dating as a transgender woman can be more safer. In the Philippines, I never really had the opportunity to experience that. But based from the, my transgender sisters that I know that lives there, like, It's a struggle like to really meet men who is interested in them. And a lot of also that in the Philippines I've heard is like you have to give money. You have to provide money to have that relationship. So when I had previous relationships from Japanese men, they would also treat me like as a woman. So I think those are my experiences living here. In Japan, as transgender, I think it's crucial to communicate openly with your potential partners about your gender identity and your experiences, and also building a support network of understanding friends can also provide a safe space for all this, you know, challenges that we have when it comes to dating.
1: Yeah. And are you meeting these folks on like apps,
2: like websites or something when you're dating? Yes. There's this... Japanese dating apps that I used before which I don't use anymore but yes that's how I met them through the dating apps and also when I used to work as a hostess and showgirl I was doing that here for like more than 10 years I was able to meet men through my work like meeting them they come to my work and then eventually it becomes relationship.
1: When you were putting your profile together, what for you made you decide that you wanted to wait to disclose that to people versus having it like out there on your profile?
2: Mm. I think it goes back to the safety. So I use several apps now. Now I use, of course, I have my Tinder app. I have also Bumble app. And since I came out though, I don't really focus on those apps anymore. Before, I would very actively use those apps to meet men, but now I use this app called My Transgender Date app, which you don't have to really re- reveal yourself because it's already written then, it's also an app for transgender women to find your potential relationships. Going back to your question, not putting it on my profile, for example, on Tinder and Bumble, I think it's not necessary to just put it there. And if you do, I think there's no chance of you to meet potential partner or potential men that will be interested in me. That's how I thought back. But now I'm using more of this app called My Transgender Day app that I don't have to tell them that I'm transgender or whatever. Like, I mean, everything was written on a profile, so I don't have to be worried about that.
1: So in some ways, you've kind of gone from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. When I think of trans-specific dating sites, I think of people who treat trans women as a fetish. Mm, mm. Is that something that you've experienced with people, with like the men approaching you
2: on that website? Or do they tend to be more respectful? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There were times there, there were men who actually will message you and ask you like questions like, so are you pre, are you like, did you do your surgery? Like, we're just too private to ask right away, right? So those questions, I think what also probably what made me think that like, you know, not trivial everything because of those fetishizing trans women. Yeah. I received those messages before. It's tricky. Dating's hard for everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: it's just hard for everybody. What are... The expectations of women in Japan?
2: So, in Japan, like there are traditional expectations of women when it comes to like femininity, their modesty, their politeness, and adherence to certain beauty standards. However, I believe that being a woman is deeply personal experience. And for me, it means embracing my authenticity, my strength, and compassion. My own journey as a transgender woman has inspired me to express my womanhood in a way that feels true to myself. Year 2020, I joined this women community called FEW Japan, F-E-W, means for empowering women in Japan. I was scouted to be one of the board of directors, and this community has been in Japan for more than 40 years. It's a community where all women come together. A lot of them are expat community. A lot of them are foreigners. And being in the community and understanding like what they fight for, I've really learned a lot. And I was really honored to be part of that community. And that community also, they wanted to be more inclusive. That's why they include me as a transgender woman to be part of the board and share my stories and share my experiences and share my struggles and what my difficulties living in japan so yeah that really helped me a lot to understand about womanhood in japan and the community
1: i know that you said american culture has influenced you watching movies and everything has anyone inspired you to be the woman that you
2: are ever since i become an activist i'm advocating for a community learning all that i've been really Inspired by all these amazing women and not just women, but also amazing trans women, like in America, like Laverne Cox, Angelica Ross. Like, apart from being an actor or a celebrity, they're also advocate a lot about our community and showing and letting people understand about us more and more. So, it's very inspiring to see them doing that. And while we don't have anyone to look up to here in Japan, According to Wikipedia, Aya Kamikawa
1: won an election in April 2003, becoming the first openly transgender person to seek or win elected office in Japan. She won a four-year term under huge media attention in Tokyo. Her platform was to improve rights for communities like women, children, the elderly, and LGBTQ people. She was the only openly transgender official in Japan until the 2017 election Of Tomoya Hosoda. If you've been following what's been happening here in the States, far-right conservatives will claim that trans women are groomers or predators, men dressing like women to gain access to the women's restroom to prey upon them. Unfortunately, this seems to be an experience echoed in Japan, frightening transgender women who live there. I'll be linking to an article so you can learn more. I was also able to find a Tumblr post of other famous trans women in Japan who are singers, actresses, businesswomen, models, and authors. So I'll be linking to that as well. And before you tell me or think to yourself, Charlie, Tumblr is not a valid resource. It is. And it's been a very prized resource to the LGBTQ plus community because it's been a way that people for years have been able to find community share definitions and resources and all sorts of stuff. So I will be linking that as well.
2: So hoping that I can also, I can use that from activism here in Japan. Sometimes my friends and I will talk about
1: what makes us feel gender euphoric and I know for myself. Sometimes it's an external experience for how someone will treat me. Mm-hmm. So for example, having someone that I'm intimate with rest their head on my now flat chest like feels really good to me. Or when people use my they, them pronouns, mm-hmm. what makes you
2: feel gender euphoria? Mm. I think having that, what you said, like using the pronouns, it shows that they're really support you and becoming a great ally and I think having them listening having them really interested in like what stories we can share about our experiences but just being a good listener I think makes me feel more safe to share my stories to them like this is how I see whenever I meet someone a new person or someone that I meet that I knew that I share something about me and then like when I see something that they're interested, like they're interested to learn more about me too, like it sparked their interest that they're interested to know about what a transgender woman like, you know, living. And I feel more excited to share my stories to them. So I think that's very important to be a good listener. What advice would you
1: give to someone who's transgender who might be considering moving to Japan, especially when thinking about, finding support, community, or even dating?
2: I think going back to community and finding support, finding the essential community is very important. I think it's very important to seek out the LGBTQ organizations, the local meetups, and other online communities. Engaging with expat and local communities that are inclusive and affirming and here in Tokyo we now have a place called Pride House, Tokyo, where you can get more informations about LGBTQ and it's also a safe space to meet fellow LGBTQ plus. And I've been there several times and they also have like events every now and then like for example, they have like the transgender I think it was they called it the transgender day month or something like this once a month event that they held like a small gathering event for transgender people so these places are i think very essential because when you get to japan again there's not much of representation when you compare it to america when you go to new york you see everyone like right off the bat but like in japan you have to know the right people you have to know the right community you have to find in order for you to understand like the situations and also what actions we still need here in Japan. Are there stereotypes
1: that people place on you or expect you to live up to when you share that you're trans?
2: So in Japan, transgender individuals here in Japan, we face challenges related to legal recognition, societal understanding, and stereotypes. Personally, I've addressed this by advocating for my legal reform and educating others about transgender experiences and being also visible as a transgender woman in my community. One incident happened to me when I did my yearly health checkup. In Japan, they're very organized, right? So they provide this once a year health checkup, like a total health checkup. And I think I'm not sure if if you're only reached a certain age or maybe like in certain age, there's a different checkups that they do. But my friends, my, my Japanese friends told me like if you're 40, if you're over 40, you should definitely do that, you know, because it's for free and you just have to make time and just book that and all that. So I booked to do my yearly checkup for the very first time. So the choices that you can have, right? Like you can book like for breast cancer, you can book for colon cancer like all this right so I book each in different clinics when I booked for my breast cancer checkup they accepted it through phone call when I showed up in the clinic my gender uh, mark is still male when I went to the clinic and I showed it like the nurse was really surprised and she was like oh you're male <laughs> and, then, and then she was expecting I was a female and then I, I told her but you guys accepted my call and I thought that wasn't the one would be a problem and then they said okay just wait in the waiting so they let me wait in the waiting room and she went back and while waiting in the waiting room there's like other patients right like waiting and she said it aloud that I'm sorry we don't provide breast cancer we don't provide breast cancer checkup for male patients (laughs) And I was like, okay, so where am I going to go if I need to go check out? I have a breast implant. And then she went back again and then asked probably the doctor or whoever that is. And then she came back saying that the city that I live in, this rule, uh, what do you call it? Like, this, There's like city, each city is right. You have like a city office, a city office that I belong coming from the city office. He said like, they don't provide that service. For male patients and then of course i asked so what am i gonna do what if i find out i'm you know like not gonna, wood i didn't have any breast cancer but like what if i found out if i'm breast can- i have a- it's possible because i have i have a breast implant and then she said like if you know if there's something hurting you like all that we can check you out but if not if you don't feel anything then you know we're not gonna if we check you and we don't find anything then you have to pay because this is for free right it's supposed to be for free so I was really shocked that they don't have the hospitals. They don't have that trainings for people that works there. It would have been nice if they asked me in a separate room and the head of the clinic or the doctor would have spoken to me properly, telling me all this, rather than like humiliate me in the public where everyone's still there, right? So I openly talk about this on my on my social media. And a lot of Japanese people were surprised that this is happening. So I think this kind of experience is so important to share. There might be other people who experienced it before, but they just shut their mouth. They don't don't speak about it. So that's one incident that happened to me that I think is really important to address and share the stories.
1: I'm so sorry to hear that you've had that experience. I've definitely had similar ones myself.
2: Okay. Yeah. And yeah. and I actually went to, so of course I was really concerned about like, I had my breast implants for many, many years. Like this was like back, you know, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. So I thought that I really need to do my checkup. So I booked a clinic where recommended by a friend who they also allow transgender patients that, you know, for checkup. So I went and luckily, like, I'm grateful that it's all good. Like I didn't have anything, but I have to pay $200 just for that checkup. While well, you can have that in that health yearly checked up as for free. <laughs> can you imagine? See, and
1: that's why I wish our health care here in the States, and I imagine most every place does this, separates it based on what your gender is or what your sex is, you know, every place is different, but that's why my stuff all still says F or female because I want to have that conversation. Mm. But like you said there's there's not a lot of people that are trained to be sensitive to that. I usually get like a nurse laughing or something mm. and like, "Oh, let me change this." And I'm like, "Don't change it actually. Mm. Leave it. Mm. That's what it needs to say." And yeah, it just creates awkward scenarios. So part of why I haven't changed it is that if I get health insurance as a man, while well, men, and I'm putting heavy air quotes on that, mm. men don't normally get like pap smears or or things like that. And so I would be denied care. I would do the same thing like how you've had to, I'd have to pay out of pocket for those services. And I just don't wanna have to do that. So until our systems, especially our healthcare systems, can decide, you know what, everyone gets access to the same care and you determine with your medical professionals what you need. We're not gonna deny it because there's an M or an F or an X on your identification or for your health insurance, like it's purely just Everyone gets access to the care that they need. And I feel like it would be a really simple change mm. to make. Mm. But I'm sure there would be people who disagree yeah. with me on that. Mm. But then that way it eliminates it eliminates the awkwardness. People are gonna have to be trained then to, you know, be more sensitive to trans and non binary individuals. And then yeah, again, you get the care you need. And yeah, I don't know. I feel very passionately about this. It's something I've been thinking about a lot more lately.
2: I agree with that. And on top of that, we pay we we also pay the same amount, you know, like what they pay. Why can't I have the same access? Yeah.
1: I wish that people could get the care that they need and that people understand it's a holistic situation, right? Because it's not enough that you have a provider Who's trans and non-binary inclusive? The staff need to be as well, right? Like from the moment maybe you call to make that appointment, that they're not misgendering you, that they're not making any comments or anything when you give them information over the phone. That yeah, if they see M on your documentation, but then you're coming up and you you look like a woman, like they're not you know making any snide comments or anything. Like the whole process needs to be smooth, and so. Yeah, that's why it's really important that all of them get trained and regularly too because there's cultural shifts. So I'd say like yearly, there needs to just be yearly training to make sure that they are doing the best care possible. But more often than not, places consider that like a bonus or an extra or something and so they won't do the work. Mm, Um, And I honestly don't mind Mm. That some places will just like specialize in it. However, mm. then you have a situation here, like there are a lot of folks who are part of the LGBTQ plus community that are in rural areas. It would take maybe five hours, sometimes more, for them to get access to care mm. for for anything um, mm. health health related. But especially for someone who's hopefully trans and non binary affirming. So it's just there's a lot. There's a lot to think about. And I just wish that people could get access to the care that they need.
2: Mm, Absolutely, yeah.
1: Sorry, I went on a whole monologue there. (laughs) No, but this is- (laughs) very passionate. But
2: these are very important. And I think that's the moment when I really realized like, wow, like how important it is for us to have like that, the healthcare, crazy. Yeah. Mm. Allyship
1: is a continuous process where we learn we unlearn we relearn things there's a lot of learning happening and i'm you know the whole point really of my podcast is to humanize allyship because we are going to make mistakes because we're Mm. people and people make mistakes I'm curious if you can share an example of a time that maybe someone failed to show up for you when you were really hoping for support from that person and what you wish they would have done instead that would have been supportive.
2: There have been times when someone failed to show up for me by misgendering or invalidating my identity. I just wish that they had taken the opportunity to listen and learn and correct their behavior. And of course, a sincere apology and a commitment to do better can go a long way in mending such situations. I think this goes with the previous relationships I had where they didn't fought for the relationship. An example is this one relationship I had with this man that we were in a relationship for over a year when he, because he was the only child and his mother was really forcing him to have kids Because he's the last he's the only child, right? And he's he's been asked by his mother, like, when are you gonna have you know, children and you know, and all that? And of course, he have these conversations with me. But he loves me. Of course, I do the same. And the fact that I can give him a child that his mother was wanting, eventually that ended the relationship. It would have been nice if he could have fought for that relationship that he wanted because he wanted to be with me. He just didn't know how to let his parents know that he's dating a transgender woman. So it happened to me several times in my previous relationship, especially for Japanese, because Japanese are not really open to their families sharing about, you know, like this, if you're part of LGBT, they don't talk about it. If they're LGBT, they even talk about it to their own families. So what more if just a relationship, not even them,
1: right? that can get really tricky Mm. i mean the science is definitely evolving and
2: do you want to have kids you know what charlie i thought about it before long time ago but but of course if before i did my transition like the full surgery i already had that thought about like if i really want to have a child in the future i can also adopt that's an option. And after the surgery, after like, you know, over the time, I'm not really even thinking about having a child anymore. I don't know. Of course, if that happens, you know, maybe it's for me. If it didn't happen, then it's not for me. I had this one relationship, my last relationship, where he was previously married. He got divorced. He has two kids. I thought he was a perfect guy for me. It was like the relationship, like the way he treated me. But that also ended up like not in a good <laughs> Good turn. Darn- when I revealed myself to him, because I didn't know that he, if he knew or not, because he never talked anything about it. And when I did, that's when he started to fade away and like totally ghosted. So I don't know. Like, I don't know if I am, if I am, you know, if I'm going to have a child or not. Like, if that happens, then it happens,
1: I guess. So. At the time of recording this, Mm -hmm. you have 167 episodes on your podcast, The Breakfast with Tiffany Show. Mm -hmm. You started it in July of 2020. And since then, when we hung out because I was on your podcast, (laughs) you've told me that you've had a lot of like transgender guests on and maybe also non-binary folks like myself. For those not familiar with this term that are not super duper in the podcasting world, pod fade is a thing. So it's when a podcast starts regularly producing episodes, but then it's like maybe every other week, then maybe once a month or so, and then it may just like stop altogether. Or some will do like three episodes and then they'll stop. And not intentionally, I just mean like they fall off because it's a lot of work. It's kind of like the ghosting of dating. So first I just want to say congrats on so many episodes because that is incredible. And I'm curious, what are some lessons or nuggets of wisdom you've learned from your different LGBTQ plus guests in particular that have stayed with you?
2: Mm. Thank you so much, Charlie. And I am also really grateful that you became a part of the podcast, Breakfast with Tiffany Show. And first, I didn't know that there was already a term or a word called fade. You said fade, right? <laughs> Pod fade. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I knew this was going on and there were several podcasts I personally followed and over the time, weren't able to continue their shows. And we both know how it's very difficult to run all this as we are independent producers. And for me, I'm really grateful for my team who has been doing incredible works and helping me throughout this year's. And recently, I found a few new, very talented people who can help me doing with more creative things for my podcast. And I started doing this podcast on my own, right? Doing everything. But I knew right then that I will need help from others to be able to run the show because it's a weekly show. And it was great that I did started it on my own as I was able to learn and understand how to podcast process works and I've also learned from having many errors and mistakes and (laughs) over the time through my podcast I've learned so much from all the guests especially from the LGBTQ guests that I had and one key lesson is the power of resilience and the importance of creating spaces for authentic conversations and also hearing their stories of their strength and their self-discovery has been a constant source of inspiration towards my activism. So that really, like you, like sharing your story on the podcast and getting to know you more, what you do. Every guest that I had on the show, there's always something I learned. And that's that's why I love doing this. I love doing continuously. It inspires me to do and continue this weekly. Even I know that it's not easy, It's not. it's difficult. It's difficult to do this continuously and also to get support from people. But over the time, like that, like the conversations, the, you know, like how important to us to have all these conversations and letting other people know about our stories, I think what's really inspires me to do more.
1: What's one allyship tip you'd like
2: everyone listening to consider? Actively listen and educate oneself about the experiences and the challenges that we LGBTQ plus, faced. I think being open to learning, asking questions, and also respecting individual identities and the pronouns. Even me, I struggle, but I still do it, you know? I still, I think it's important for us to to acknowledge this, and it's a powerful way to show our support and solidarity. Listening to podcasts like yours and mine, Charlie, I think is definitely important, and that's what we are here for, to share all our stories. We also invite prominent guests from our community and discuss everything about our community, our struggles, our successes, our normal day-to-day life experiences. I think if people doesn't know how we go through with our lives, I think they will not understand us. And understanding is a must before acceptance.
1: Tiffany, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. It was delightful to get to continue our conversation from when I was on your podcast. Every time we connect, it's a wonderful conversation and I learn so much, so thank you again. I'm also laughing because it's been a while since someone has jammed in a lot of tips and not just one. Here are the final three self-reflection questions before you go. Number four. Is there something I share about myself that may give people pause? How do I wish they would respond instead? Number five, have I experienced discrimination while seeking health care? Number six, do I think I have to understand someone to accept them? Visit allyshipisaverb.com for any resources and a full transcript of the episode. And remember, sometimes allyship means actively listening and educating oneself.